You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 6th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... A lot of that, looking at the polling, was to do with Jeremy Corbyn personally. We have to ask whether the old-style Blairites, do they exist anymore? My studio guests, Mary Dudevsky and Alex von Tunzelman, will discuss the future of the Labour Party here in Britain as the leadership contest heats up. And we'll dig into the day's other news, including following Friday's assassination of the Iranian military general Qasem Soleimani by the US, we look at the impact of ominous news headlines on our collective psyche. Plus, can we divide humans into two camps, those who worship their cats and those who worship a higher power? Plus, the latest opinion from Monocle's editorial floor. Although there's some way to go until Americans finally head to the polls on the 3rd of November, fear not. We can enjoy the bun fight through a series of caucuses and primary votes over who'll become the next Democratic candidate. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to the show. I'm joined on today's news panel by Mary Dejewski, writer for The Independent and The Guardian newspapers, and Alex von Tunzelman, historian, author and screenwriter. Well, the starting gun was properly fired this weekend in the race to become the next leader of Britain's main opposition Labour Party. It has already become a crowded field, with each candidate trying to offer a clean break with the past, yet unwilling to upset the Labour hardcore who were the only people who seemed to vote in last month's general election for the Labour Party. Um, Alex, whoever takes over does so from a position of absolute rock bottom for the party. Is that right? Well, let's hope so, um, from their point of view that it's rock bottom because sinking further would not be a good thing. Um, That's the spirit. (laughs) I think, yes, I mean, obviously... The last election was a disaster and I mean particularly I think a lot of the figures that came out made it pretty clear that in fact the Tory vote hadn't even increased that much. It was more that the Labour vote had collapsed that was a very big problem for the Labour Party and I think a lot of that looking at the polling was to do with Jeremy Corbyn personally. There was also, um, you know, Brexit was a big issue for them um, but I think overwhelmingly it was coming out in the polls that it was a personal issue with him. So almost anybody who replaces him is kind of starting (laughs) with a level of improvement there. Um, And in a sense, Brexit policy now moves into a different stage because, of course, we know Brexit is going to happen on the 31st of January. um, And then we're going to move into the negotiation stage um, on withdrawal and all of that. Now, that kind of changes the mechanics of that for a Labour leader. They can't anymore, you know, there's not much point anymore talking about revoke or remain or anything like that. Although Jess Phillips did talk yesterday about rejoin as a future possibility. Um, But I think Really, it changes the mechanics and then it's about them talking, just opposing, doing what they're supposed to do as an opposition government, opposing what the Conservatives are doing. So we're probably going to hear a lot of talk about, you know, um, Brexit is going wrongly, they're mishandling it, etc. So we have the runners and riders stepping up, Mary, ranging from uh, a Remain human rights lawyer who was the shadow shadow Brexit secretary uh, who campaigned hard for a second referendum to uh, someone who wants to think about rejoining uh, to cookie-cutter copies, but in the female form, of the Jeremy Corbyn style, which went down so badly with the voters? Well, I think we have to look at really whether it did go down so well, so badly with the voters.
with the voters because on the one hand, yes, there appears to have been an antipathy towards um, Jeremy Corbyn personally. But when you look at the demographic of the Labour Party vote, what you see is actually quite a big enthusiasm, if not for Corbyn personally, then for his policies, very left wing, very old-fashioned socialist policies of nationalisation, subsidies, all sorts of things that we haven't seen for decades. They were very popular with a generation who were in their, um, in the earlier stages of their youth during the financial crisis. And I think this, this battle, as it were, for the soul of the Labour Party, it's not over yet. Um, and we're looking at the moment almost at only half of it in terms of the candidates who've declared so far who want to be leader because we're looking at centre, um, yes, Keir Starmer, to the left. But there's, there's a big gap there um, and we have to ask whether, this is, whether the, the old-style Blairites... Do they exist anymore? They certainly don't exist very much in the parliamentary party as it was elected at the, uh, the last election. But where is somebody, for instance, like Yvette Cooper? Where is the where are the noises coming from somebody who's been incredibly vocal on the sidelines from his privileged perch in New York, David Miliband? Where where are people who can influence that wing of the party? We haven't heard from them yet. Does that mean that that's over? That Labour is actually veering not exactly to Corbynism, but that is sort of more the shape of the future than Blairism. Are any of them up to it, Mary? Well, I mean, I saw some comments yesterday, which was the first day really of sort of um, campaigning on the Sunday talk shows where there was some comment among sort of professional political pundits who said, actually, this could shape up to be quite a sort of a thoughtful election um, representing a lot of different currents in the Labour Party. Um, but, of course, that has its pluses and minuses, as we saw um, during the Tory party leadership election. There again, you had some very different strands and what you've come out, what you've come out with is Boris Johnson and the right as far as Brexit is concerned, but maybe not as far as other things are concerned. So there appear to be two enormous jobs here, Alex, which first is the the idea of rebuilding a shattered party which does not have a unified core. And secondly, once you have rebuilt that shattered party, you have to be strong enough to take on the Conservatives and not only beat them, but beat them so much that you bring back all the voters who deserted them for the Conservatives in the last election. I mean, that is a double task of, of huge proportions. And bring back more than the ones who deserted them, because remember, Labour already were in, in a minority, so actually they need to win back even more than their deserted voters and, and in specific places. It is a tremendous task, and it's always been difficult for Labour in the last few years particularly, that there are huge divides in their own vote. Um, their, mer their membership is actually overwhelmingly Remain. Um, but of course, in those northern seats they lost, uh, Brexit was a problem for them because a lot of Labour members in those northern seats are actually much more leave. So these people want something very different. And how you unite a party that is so split on those different issues is a tremendous challenge. 
Um, I do think there are some actually quite promising candidates, but it will be very interesting to see where it goes. At the moment, the polls have uh, Keir Starmer in the lead. Um, and I mean, you know, it will be interesting to see, of course, everything can be shaken up during a campaign. So go on, tell me, who are your promising candidates? Who's caught your eye as a possible leader? Well, I do think Keir Starmer has a certain competence to him, actually. Um, I think it's interesting to see some younger people from the left of the party stepping up, people like Clive Lewis. Um, I would say Jess Phillips is a slightly more centrist candidate who is reasonably credible. Um, and, you know, there are these different voices coming up who are quite interesting. And, I mean, it will be a big choice for Labour which of those they go for. I also think Angela Rayner is very promising, who I think is standing for deputy leader um, from the kind of, you know, soft mid-left of the party, all these like fine degrees <laughs> between centrism and Corbynism that they have. Um, Mary, what, do, what are your thoughts on, on what Alex has just said? I mean, the mentioning of, of Sir Keir Starmer, he is seen mm-hmm. at, as the, the, the leader at the moment, the leading candidate. Um, despite the fact that he is called Sir, he is absolutely <laughs> very, very keen to stress the fact that he has very humble working class backgrounds. His mother was a nurse. And he just happens to have done the right thing. Some are suggesting that he's the right leader, but either four years too early or four years too late. <laughs> yes, I think there is some truth in that. Um, and I, d- I don't think it's just the sir um, that is Keir Starmer's problem. Um, I think he would be seen um, by, as it were, younger and newer members of the Labour Party who joined because of Corbyn. Um, he would be seen as the establishment candidate and somebody that they they will not support um uh, you know it's been it's been said ever since labor's loss in 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 the election that um they've got not just this huge task to unite the party but do they will a uniting leader actually come from the london establishment this is the, the, this is what Keir Starmer represents. I don't know if you, I mean if you're a woman over forty five. Apparently, Sir Keir has rather something delicious about him. This is what, <laughs> this is the impression that I got over Christmas dinners. Um, but just but you know if you are not a, a London metropolitan woman over forty five, he might not be your bag. But just looking at where the next leading light could come from, Alex. It, when I look at the way that the United Kingdom is at the moment, it reminds me of France about three or four years ago when the socialists collapsed mm. and the main political structure just didn't, didn't seem to know what to do. And then suddenly Emmanuel Macron comes in with En Marche, a brand new party, a brand new voice and a bit of razzle-dazzle to boot. They sort of tried this in the United Kingdom last year, didn't they, with a, I can't even remember, TIG, (laughs) change, the group for change, (laughs) something. It lasted about 10 minutes, but it was one of those little flag-waving hurrahs saying, come on, let's have a go at breaking the mould. Are we, is the United Kingdom so stuck in a mould here that it can't actually make space for, for, for newness and change that way? I think there's a tremendous problem with the current setup of the sort of effective two-party system. Um, you know, which had the Lib Dems done better, we might not be talking about a two-party system, but we really are now because because uh, they didn't break through. And as for, yes, Change UK, the independent group, all of these various sort of incarnations of, of trying to do a kind of en marche challenge absolutely kind of foundered and just did not take flight at all. Um, 
But there is a problem in that we have a sort of system which is a is a funny compromise anyway, in that we have a system that was designed really for you to vote for an individual MP. I mean, actually, party names weren't even on the ballot paper until the, 19, the end of the 1960s. You just had to vote for your local MP and you had to find out who they were and vote for the candidate you liked. So now we have quite strong party affiliations. Everything is very whipped and all of that. And those names are on the ballot paper. And yet we're still voting for the individuals. So there's a sort of complicated compromise, I think, going on in terms of what you want, what you should vote. Um, and there's sort of, ha- you know, we've got a party system grafted on to a kind of individual constituency, first past the post system. And I think that is bringing up these immense contradictions and, and great difficulties for actually for both big parties going forward. I mean, you know, the Conservatives also have a problem demographically in the future in that they're under 50, uh, the under 50s actually go majority Labour in most cohorts now, um, which is much more extreme than it used to be. So as they're kind of older, more Brexity voters, you know, pass on, um, they how are they going to speak to a younger generation who don't own homes, who don't have job security, who don't have pensions, and therefore sort of traditional conservative values don't necessarily speak to them? Um, it's going to be a problem in the future for them. I think there's, a, the, the, there's another question about why the UK can't produce a Macron-type figure, which is that we don't have a presidential system. Um, and even though this past election was fought, I would say, on much more presidential style lines that it was Corbyn versus versus Boris Johnson. Um, nonetheless, um, to campaign in a presidential election where people have direct votes for individuals, then an individual candidate can make that sort of mark between parties or different from parties setting themselves above those structures. We don't have that possibility. Alex Wontenselman and Mary Dejewski there. And we'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Emma. Huge crowds have swarmed the streets of the Iranian capital, Tehran, for the funeral of Qasim Soleimani. Iran's top military commander was assassinated in a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad on Friday on the orders of U.S. President Donald Trump. Leaders in Tehran have vowed revenge for his death. Rain has fallen in parts of Australia that have been devastated by wildfires. Officials have warned that the respite may only be temporary, as temperatures are expected to rise again towards the end of the week. Authorities also say fires in Victoria and New South Wales could meet to create a larger blaze. Rival lawmakers in Venezuela, Juan Guaido and Luis Para, have both declared themselves parliamentary speaker. This follows chaotic scenes in the country's National Assembly, where Mr. Guaido who is backed by the U.S., was prevented from entering Parliament. And the Monocle Minute reports on the annual Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, CES, which will welcome almost 200,000 delegates from 160 countries when it kicks off on Tuesday. And for more on this story and for all the latest from CES, head over to monocle.com minute and sign up for our daily news bulletin. Now back to you, Emma. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson here with Mary Dejewski and Alex von Tunzelman. Now, yesterday, as I browsed the website of the independent newspaper here in the UK, two articles were riding high on the sidebar as the most read. First, how to prepare for a nuclear attack. And secondly, what will happen if the world lets off all its nuclear bombs at once. The popularity of these pieces could only arguably be put down to last Friday's assassination of the Iranian military general Qasem Soleimani by the US. 
The reaction online by us mere civilians has, it seems, been to dig out our copy of Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Two Tribes and Google nuclear bunkers near me. Mary, is this proof that big faraway events do have a human everyday consequence? Well, I didn't really see it like that. Um, How it seemed to me was that what we've got is a whole generation on social media who basically know nothing about the Cold War, about real nuclear standoffs, about real dangers, um, and are taking everything from fiction. Um, I was absolutely amazed um, by the speed with which we went from what is arguably um, an illegal assassination of, yes, somebody very, very important, um, but you know, not not right up there. Um, the speed with which we went from that to talking about, are we on the brink of World War Three? I mean, that just seemed to me to be a conclusion way too far. It was pretty quick, though, but listening to the immediate reaction to Soleimani's assassination on Friday, quite a lot of news outlets were saying, look, you don't know who he is at the moment, but let us explain who he is. He's incredibly important, incredibly influential, co- controlled Iran's foreign policy for years and years and years. This is more important than the assassination of, Al-K- of, of uh, Osama bin Laden. Suddenly, I felt as if something had been ratcheted up rather, rather quickly and as if it did lose control of itself. And rather, the media, dare I say it, might have been halfway responsible for that. Certainly. I think there is also an issue with, you know, which we've had now for a long time with us, but perhaps becomes more and more apparent with 24 hour rolling news and constantly having to fill space and endless speculation about are we all about to be nuclear annihilated is, of course, you know, very attention grabbing um, and fills that space very effectively. I mean, um, but on the other hand, you know, Coming in as a historian, I always have to say none of this is new. Um, having written a book on the Cuban Missile Crisis, I know there was an enormous amount of paranoia, of course, in the 1960s, although some of it, of course, it's not so much paranoia if it's true. I mean, uh, it could actually have happened at that point. Um, and in the 1980s, again, a lot of a great deal of nuclear scares. But I do think where Mary is completely uh, makes a very valid point that actually those were much more serious standoffs that were much, much closer to something actually happening. Now, in terms of what's happened in Iran, it's incredibly serious and it ratchets up tensions and I think it is deeply worrying. But for it to become something that you might begin to call World War Three, you'd have to have a lot of other powers getting involved. So we'd have to be seeing a very different reaction than we're currently seeing from Russia, for instance. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot more nuclear countries really kind of uh, gearing up and getting in. And I don't think we are seeing that, actually. I think we're seeing quite a lot of caution from almost everyone apart from the United States. And the the, the paranoia that Alex talks about was paranoia against ideologies at the time, wasn't it? I mean, against communism, the idea that um, you should grow up afraid of the Russians. It was It was one of those things that was sort of drilled into you as a child, but something that no longer exists. In the West, at least, one would say. Well, you might say that it no longer exists, but when you look at the um, the whole story of Russiagate in Washington, um, and you also look to an extent about the way that um, the US Congress treats China, for instance, then I think you can see that there are, as it were, um, new mythologies, new threats that are the, the sometimes in the in the guise of old threats in the in in, in the case of Russia, um, and to a slightly lesser extent. 
in the UK as well, that there is an automatic um, lurch to to blame Russia, which may, you know, in the next five, five years, it may become a lurch to blame China, just as a knee-jerk reaction too. Everybody needs a baddie all the time. Uh, finally, in this section of the programme, at least, we are quite away historically from the idea of having a little old lady living down her with her cat down the road, being potentially a witch and her familiar on your doorstep. But it appears a cat is the pet of choice for the godless. And not just that, the domestic moggy has, according to a new report, become the modern-day replacement for having a deity in your life. Um, firstly, if you don't mind me asking too private a question here, uh, do we do cats or God around here, or do we do both or neither? I'll be fine, I have no God and I'm quite agnostic about cats, but don't <laughs> mind them. I'll kick off with that. How about you, Mary? I do neither. I wishfully do dogs. Wishfully do dogs. OK, and how about you? Um, I'm a dog person who lost a fight with my husband, so I have two cats and no God. Right, OK. So that sets the state around here, but... Um, what is it, therefore, as a cat owner, Alex, that yes. makes us think that we have a god in our midst when we have a cat? Um, some people have been saying that um, they're always judging you, they require daily offerings, and they never give you any love back, just confusion. <laughs> I found this story completely hilarious as one who has in the last year, you know, acquired these cats who actually, despite being a dog person, I'm now enormously fond of. But anyone who thinks they're gods really needs to spend a bit of time with them. They're actually complete goofballs um, and, and really idiots. I mean, you know, yesterday one of mine uh, managed to tip over the laundry basket and spent all day running around like a tortoise, with, but unable to get himself out from under it. I mean, if I was going to worship an animal, I think I'd try and choose something a little bit smarter, <laughs> certainly than my cats. But I can see, you know, obviously there are civilizations who have revered cats. The ancient Egyptians, everyone always points to, had Bast or Bastet, the cat-headed god, um, and, you know, really revered these sort of, uh, these creatures as, as somehow divine. But again, I must say, theirs, theirs were obviously smarter than mine. Indeed, I, there's a brilliant article in the Times that explains just how important the Egyptians uh, <laughs> considered cats to be. Uh, Persian soldiers arrived at the battlefield, I think it's the Battle of Pelusium, to fight the kingdom of Egypt for the pharaoh's throne. They carried cats as shields. The Egyptians considered the animals sacred and refused to injure them, and the Persians evaded the Egyptians' arrows and purred their way to victory. And it, it is a sort of strange thing, isn't it, the analogy between cats and God? Yes, but you can also, you, you, when this is highlighted, you can actually partly understand it. I spent Christmas with my sister, who by complete accident um, has acquired three cats. And of those three cats, at any one time, one of them will be looking extremely statuesque, will be calm, silent, almost like a god. So you can sort of understand um, how people could worship them and also how the cats maybe see themselves um, as somehow aloof, um, something to be admired, maybe something even to be worshipped. Mary Dajewski and Alex von Tinselman, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Monocle 24. Well, in a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about the circus that is the US presidential election set to heat up now that we are finally into 2020. You're listening to Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson. Stay tuned. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board. 
is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. And if you've just joined us, welcome to Monocle's House View. Finally, today, our editorial team examines the road to Washington as this year's presidential election heats up. Roll up, roll up. The circus is coming to a state near you. We're approaching the business end of the US election cycle, that protracted, drama-filled and cash-heavy roadshow with its infinite lurches. Well, sort of. Although there's some way to go until Americans finally head to the polls on the 3rd of November, fear not. We can enjoy the bun fight through a series of caucuses and primary votes over who'll become the next Democratic candidate. As ever, the contenders will be looking to score big in Iowa at the start of February, where campaign managers insist that momentum is the name of the game going into New Hampshire and beyond. Here's what we've learned so far. Pundits are fearful of making predictions after the surprises of 2016. Joe Biden is somehow managing to stay at the top of the pack despite a series of blunders and gaffes. Fated candidates, Kamala Harris, anyone, can suddenly falter and nosedive. And the clutch of democratic potentials is looking a lot whiter than it once was, despite the party's claims that it would counter Donald Trump's nativism through diversity. So what's to come? Expect plenty of screaming matches on cable television and be prepared to be thoroughly perplexed about the role of Democratic superdelegates at the National Convention in Wisconsin in July. And get ready for the histrionics of Super Tuesday on March the 3rd, when 15 states and jurisdictions hold their primaries, including, for the first time on that day, California. The big unknown, of course, is to be found in whether the impeachment trial in the Senate will quash Trump's chances of re-election or simply play into his oft-touted witch-hunt discourse. Make a prediction? We couldn't possibly. And that's all we have time for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Tia Thomas-Alexander. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Your host this week is Robert Bound. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>